0: All right, well, uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we will we will continue on in our study of denominations, particularly looking at Roman Catholicism uh, this morning. Uh, Lord Jesus, uh, we praise you because we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and because we are justified um, in light of the blood of Christ, and credited righteousness as opposed to something that we could merit, something that we could build up, and so... We pray particularly as we look at the Catholic doctrine of justifications, very different than ours, um, that you would give us sharp minds, that you would give us humility, uh, that you would help us think well about these things, uh, that you would be with us. This would not be some dry exercise in in learning about uh, uh, um, Roman Catholicism that uh, really does nothing more than help people know about something, uh, but that it would draw us further into wanting to move towards those Uh, who have uh, errant theology in certain places uh, to call people out of darkness uh, wherever they uh, may be and uh, whatever denomination they may be in. And so we ask for your grace during this time. Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, so last time we began to unpack Roman Catholicism, and we looked at two foundational tenets of Roman Catholicism uh, that I borrowed from Leonardo uh, de Chirico. I believe that's how you say his name. Um, And of course, I've learned about him through Greg Allison, but he talks about two foundational tenets that really kind of unite Roman Catholic theology as opposed to a set of disparate rulings of the Catholic Church. These foundational tenets that really turn it into a systematic theology. One is that grace nature interdependence, where nature is always a receptacle to grace and grace completes or perfects nature. Um, and grace is always shown concretely in nature, and so grace was operative before the fall. Grace, on our paradigm, is something that came after the fall. the Catholic paradigm, that's not the case. Grace was operative, uh, holding back Adam in his concupiscence, and he has the 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 the, the donum this extra added gift that was helping him not fall. And of course, it still happened anyway because of his his free will, but you have this nature, grace, interdependence, and we use the example of water in the Catholic Church, that you can take nature, water, and you can confer grace upon it, and then it becomes holy water, and then you can baptize someone with that holy water, and that infuses grace to them, okay? Nature, grace, interdependence. The second thing that was closely related to that was the Christ-Church interconnection, which is that uh, that there there has to be some kind of mediating agent between nature and grace and that principally is the person of Jesus Christ but the Catholic Church understands themselves in light of Matthew chapter 16 and Peter and the succession and all the rest of it to be the incarnate extension as it were of the the incarnation and so they stand to mediate grace to nature or they stand to mediate what we might say something like the gospel or salvation and dispense those things. Um, Then we talked about tradition and authority according to Catholicism, really kind of two understandings of tradition. By far, the most ancient one is that dual source understanding of tradition. There's written tradition and verbal tradition, but then a more recent understanding of tradition that we called material sufficiency that said, no, everything is actually in the Bible, but you just can't discern it, okay? You just can't discern it. You need the uh, infallible teaching, authoritative teaching of the Catholic Church to be able to actually understand those things, and I gave you some examples. Why why would we, why where is any evidence that we would, you know, pray to Mary to intercede for us before Jesus? That's nowhere in Scripture. Well, you look at John chapter 2, and it is Mary at the wedding feast, who, who, who intercedes for the master of the feast before Jesus. And so that's our paradigm for praying to Mary. And we all read that and said, uh, pretty sure that's not what that means at all. And of course the Catholic response is, well, of course you wouldn't see that. You, know, you wouldn't understand that. And that's why you have to have the authoritative interpretation of the church and all the rest of it. Okay? Talked about different levels of authority. Um, and then we talked about different kinds of authority with the ordinary and the extraordinary magisterium. Uh, all the way up to the ex cathedra pronouncements of the Pope, which, in which the Holy Spirit guards him against error in, uh, when he's speaking in matters of faith and practice for the church, for the global church. He's kind of speaking as the vicar of Christ on earth. And then we just kind of march through the structure of the Catholic church from Pope all the way down to laity. Okay, so that is the very, very brief recap. And now we will continue through our under, uh, our little framework for looking at all of these denominations, and we are going to look at justification. As it turns out, however, justification on the Catholic story of things is very much intermingled with sanctification, okay? which is very much intermingled with the sacramental economy within Catholicism. So you really can't talk about justification in some kind of complete way without also talking about what we would call sanctification and without talking about the, the, the seven-sacrament economy within the Catholic Church. And so that'll be the task before us, and I hope to get through at least half of those today and then end up presenting the rest of the sacraments on Roman Catholicism next time and, start, and offer a critique before we turn to orthodoxy. Does that sound good? Does that sound like a plan? Okay, I'm trying not to camp out on these things too long, but um, I do want to actually present them fairly. What I don't want to do is present distortions of these views. I want to present them fairly, and then we can critique them fairly. Okay? Okay, so let's get at it. The Roman Catholic understanding of justification is the following. In justification, virtue, uh, uh, righteousness, is graciously infused into the believer who starts the Christian life through baptism, actually righteous. The catechism says just before God, and then tends to that righteousness by good works and appropriation of the sacraments over the course of their life. Justification is a process that ends in glorification or the beatific vision, beholding God. So for example, from 1989, this is not the year 1989, from the Catholic Catechism point, uh, the first work of grace of the Holy Spirit is conversion, affecting justification in accordance with Jesus' claim at the beginning of the gospel. Moved by grace, man turns towards God and away from sin, thus accepting forgiveness and righteousness from on high. And then there's a citation. Justification is not only the remission of sins, but also the sanctification and renewal of the interior man. Okay? Okay. So, there is, to be very clear, there is a substantive moral change in justification. It is not a declaration that someone is righteous who is not. It is righteousifying somebody, and that starts at baptism. Again, 1990, justification detaches man from sin, which contradicts the love of God, and purifies his heart of sin. Purifies his heart of sin. Justification follows upon God's merciful initiative of offering forgiveness. It reconciles man with God. It frees from enslavement to sin, and it heals. All right? Finally, 1992. Justification, and I'm I'm quoting from the Catholic Catechism, just so you don't have to trust me on this, okay? That's why I'm quoting from the authoritative sources here. Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God, who makes us inwardly just, okay, that is to say actually righteous, by the power of his mercy. Its purpose is the glory of God in Christ and the gift of eternal life. Okay, so baptism, which is the first, now you can immediately see why you can't talk about justification without talking about sanctification and the sacramental economy, particularly baptism. So baptism is where it all starts. It's the beginning point. Dan the man. Hey, buddy. Good to see you. Is it awkward when I say hey to people when they walk in? Sorry, I won't do any more. I was just happy to see him. He, he couldn't, didn't see him last Sunday. Okay, so, so baptism in infants washes away original sin. And in those uh, in adults, baptism washes away all committed sins, along with along with original sin. Okay, such that they are at that moment actually just before God. Okay, there's nothing to forgive. All right, that person could go into heaven simply because they are a righteous person at that point. All right, that's how that works. And again. You see the grace nature interdependence with the baptism, don't you? We have holy water that's, had, that's been graced. And then that, because then you see the Christ church interconnection. The priest, because it's a sacerdotal economy to, as well, means to, in virtue of the priesthood. The priest who's the mediator takes this graced nature and then because he's the mediator, graces people with justification. He's able to dispense that. Okay. The reason they have the ability is because they receive the sacrament of holy orders. Holy orders infuses these, the, the priests with a particular power of the Holy Spirit that allows them to do that. We'll get to that. That's one of the sacraments, holy orders. But we're not there yet. I'm getting ahead of myself. You've got to tell me to slow down sometimes, okay? So justification does not occur in a single moment. It's not like I was justified. No, that's not it. That's not it. Justification doesn't occur in a single moment, as some of those references that you heard probably suggested to you. Um, Being righteous, being just, inwardly just, my heart being actually righteous and just before God, is the place that everyone starts. That's the place where everyone starts. But then, post-baptismal sin ruins that. I fall from my perfect righteousness, actual righteousness that I had. Um, and then there is a process of righteousification that takes place over someone's entire life. So the justification and sanctification are really blended together on the Catholic scheme of things. Okay, um, and, and, and the Roman Roman Catholic concept of grace as something that is intermingled with nature itself is clear. Let me give you one more quote here. The grace of Christ is the... This is from 19, uh, 1999. The grace of Christ is the gratuitous gift that God makes to us of His own life infused by the Holy Spirit. So grace is this thing that is shot into, so to speak, to put it a little bit crudely, infused into people into our soul to heal it of sin and to sanctify it it is the sanctifying or deifying grace that is received in baptism so all of this is received in baptism it is in us the source of the work of sanctification okay this grace that is infused remember and it makes sense nature grace interdependence what does grace do Grace completes uh, or perfects nature. That's not a new phenomenon for them after the fall. Grace was operative in nature before the fall. It's still bringing things to completion. It's still bringing things to its end as this thing that is inside nature as a kind of receptacle. Okay? So, you have justification, major point. But related to that is the discussion of merit. Merit. What exactly are we to make of merit? Well, the Protestant has a very clear answer. None! You know, uh, the, the merit of Jesus Christ, of course, might, of course, would be the thing that you wanted to say, had merit. Not so. Not so in the Catholic scheme. Because grace is operative in us, it's infused in us, we are able to merit eternal life for ourselves and contribute to meriting it for others, whereby God is cra- crowns His... Own grace in our lives as our due. Now, now, to the the Protestant, this sounds very odd. How could you graciously have merit? Protestants are, your ears start smoking, whatever. But if you understand the Catholic understanding of grace, what they're saying is listen, you've got grace infused into you. That's what makes any of this possible. No one can merit uh, initial justification. They make that very clear. No one can merit initial justification. Everyone is a sinner uh, who deserves the wrath of God. Okay, you don't merit the grace of initial justification, but you have grace infused into you that enables you to do works. And so you are going to end up, in a sense, living a justified life or not, and really to degrees, and that's where purgatory comes in. We'll get to that. But all of that is made possible by God's grace that is in you, working in you to bring things to completion, and so that is the sense in which a Catholic can say all of our merits are but grace, which sounds very confusing. And in fact, it is because it is inf- it is confusing. But on their categories, it makes sense. It makes sense. It's not as though they're saying anyone can just merit eternal life by, by just being a good person. It's not like some you know, Pelagianism or something like that. It's an infused grace that enables these things to happen. So from 2008, again, for those who, for half the people who, uh, we, my class doubled in size, I think, in about 30 seconds. This is just great. Uh, but from 2008, listen very closely. The merit of man before God in the Christian life arises from the fact that God has freely chosen to associate man with the work of his grace. The fatherly action of God is first on his own initiative and then follows man's free acting through his collaboration So that the merit of good works is to be attributed in the first place to the grace of God. And secondarily, and then to the faithful. Okay? Man's merit, moreover, is itself due to God. For his good actions proceed in Christ from the predispositions and assistance given by the Holy Spirit. Okay? Not uh, 2009, the merit of our good works are gifts of the divine goodness. The merit of our good works are the gift of the divine goodness. Grace has gone before us. Now we are given what is due. Our merits are God's gifts. And again, if you're struggling to understand that, it's because it's underst- I understand why you're struggling to understand that, because you're understanding grace through the Protestant paradigm of grace And not the Catholic paradigm of grace. On the Catholic paradigm of grace, it makes sense. On the Protestant understanding of grace, it's just—it's literally a contradiction. Okay. But you have to—we have to give uh, their—we have to you to explain your own terms when you're doing theology, and that's how they explain their terms, and so it's fair enough as far as it goes. All right. Um, Finally, let me just read from 2010. Since the initiative belongs to God in the order of grace, no one can merit. The initial grace of forgiveness and justification. No one can merit that. It's all grace. Grace alone at the beginning. At the beginning of conversion. Moved by the Holy Spirit and by charity, we can then merit for ourselves and for others. Hold that thought. The graces needed for our sanctification, for the increase of grace and charity, and for the attainment of eternal life. Even temporal goods, like health and friendship, can be merited in accordance with God's wisdom. These graces and goods are the object of Christian prayer. Prayer attends to the grace we need for meritorious acts. Okay. Again, very much, the grace nature, interdependence, super strong. Like on full display here. Grace is something that is infused into everyone, and let me give you an example. If that's hard for for you to for people to understand, let's say I dropped me, and so me and a Navy SEAL were dropped in a war zone, okay, and uh, uh, we were both given um uh, whatever what's the standard issue M sixteen whatever what is it Egan M four That was close a couple 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 numbers off all right all right. <laughs> M4. We both got an M4. Alright, but here's the thing. I don't know how to use an M4, but the Navy SEAL does, but we were, you know what, we were both graciously given. They both dropped out of a helicopter for us as just like a, hey, here's a help that you could not procure from yourself. But here's, a, but here's the thing. The difference between who gets out alive is not based on just who got that initial gift, Right? Is who knows how to appropriate it and who appropriates it well, okay? Because I'm going to be dead very quickly, all right? And Egan's getting out of there, all right? Mike will be walking away, and I will be meeting Jesus. And the difference is because he actually knows how to shoot guns, and I don't, okay? That's like this. That's like this. Everyone starts with grace. Everyone has this assistance that's infused but kind of whether, but whether or not you get to the finish line depends on how you appropriate those things. And when you get to the end, it's like, well, yeah, of course you deserve this, but, you, but none of it would be anything if it were not for the gift that you had. The only reason this was made possible was because of grace. Does that make sense? Does the illustration make sense? Okay. So, look, now I mentioned, the, the catechism mentions meriting grace, graces and merit for other people. All right? So let's talk about the treasury of merit very briefly. The merit of Christ's person and work combined with the supererogatory, which is like above and beyond, or supererogatory, however however you want to say it, it doesn't matter. Uh, Above and beyond kinds of obedience. It's like a Mother Teresa would be a great example kind of thing, like we're super, super kind of saint. These works of the saints and Christ form an inexhaustible bank of good works that can be applied to a believer's soul to achieve a reduction in the temporal punishment due their sin. In the temporal punishment due their sin. And so after you are made perfectly righteous in baptism and you sin, guess what? You're not just anymore. God's a just God. He's got to punish sin. So that means you have to be punished. Okay? And that is going to, uh, and if you are not, perfectly righteous, or past, right? So here, let's just make it real crude. Here's like the righteous, perfectly righteous finish line. You start here. This is the start line. Most people, regrettably, you know, fall way behind, right, in life, and maybe they die right here, okay? But some people are like the super saints, and they finish up here. They've got super irritatory works. Well, if you finish down here, and you're not quite right with God, there is temporal punishment until you are fully justified. Okay? Because God is just. And so God has to punish sin. And so He has to punish you. And if you are not all the way there, what happens? That's the doctrine of purgatory. Purgatory completes uh, one and prepares one for heaven. But here's the thing. This, the merits, the treasury of merit, because the Catholic Church can appropriate these over and above works, they can actually appropriate some of your merits to somebody else. These are accomplished, this is accomplished by having an indulgence granted by the Catholic Church, where you can get a particular number of days, uh, and, 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 and it, it kind of depends on where you're at in church history and depending on how many days can get taken off or whatever. But this is the idea days off in purgatory. And you remember Tetzel was selling indulgences in the Protestant Reformation. People, of course, were. Uh, you know, when going to Martin Luther, Father Martin, you know, what's going on here? We can get it. We heard we can go down to Tetzel and buy an indulgence. And, blah, 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 blah. and, and that's and that was one of the precipitating causes of the Reformation, uh, among other things, of course. But um, indulgences are granted only by the church. And they're right there is the Christ Church interconnection. They are the ones who mediate the treasury of merit to nature. That is to say you and I. Okay? And because it, it's all seen as like one big family. So you have a three-tiered church in Catholic theology. You have the church, on the earthly church. You have the heavenly church, saints who have died. But you also have the purgatorial church. Those who will reach heaven but aren't there yet. You have a three-tiered church. We only have a, Protestants only have a two-tiered church. So from 14, there are plenary indulgences, which is like totally back to zero. It's like a full, it can only be given by the Pope. The vast majority of bishops can only give uh, partial, partial indulgences a certain number of days. So, an indulgence is obtained through the church who by virtue of the power of binding and loosing, is that Matthew 16 language, granted her by uh, Christ Jesus, intervenes in favor of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints to obtain from the Father of mercies the remission of, of the temporal punishments due for their sin. Thus the church does not want to simply come to the aid of these Christians, but also wants to spur them to works of devotion, penance and charity. 1479 Since the faithful departed, since the faithful departed are now, since the faithful departed now being purified, are also members of the same communion of saints. One way we can help them is to obtain indulgen- indulgences for them, so that the temporal punishments due their sins may be remitted. What he's saying is, you got grandma. Grandma, you know, she was a bad Catholic, so she's, but she was, you know, she's in or whatever. So, but she's in purgatory. You know what you can do to help grandma? Indulgences that will help take her time off because. Part of the treasury of merit will then be applied to her and she will get closer to being actually just again. Okay? So everyone understands this linear picture that we're talking about. Okay? That last point just simply brings up purgatory. I know that's a long bullet point. Let's just read it together. Purgatory is a post-mortem, that is to say after death, place of refinement for those who die with venial sins. A certain, it's like the, the, the venial, we'll talk about that in a second, but it's the sins that aren't uh, quite as serious for which they have not made appropriate satisfaction in life. In purgatory, the gap between how one started the Christian life, morally perfect before God through baptism, and how they finished it is addressed and closed so that one can achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven. Time spent in tur- purgatory is dependent on how faithfully someone lived and engaged uh, in the sacraments, okay, so indulgences can be bought for people who have uh who are deceased, where works of devotion and charity and repentance can help get merit applied to their account, so they go up uh they they get they can achieve the holiness required for heaven faster, yes, sir uh in the Protestant reformation, yes, absolutely, it's not how it works now, yeah, not in the same way in the reformation, that's exactly what. What's going on? So usually it's going to work through the bishop, who's going to grant it, and they're going to assign certain acts or expect certain acts of, of work of charity. Uh, they're going to uh, charity, repentance, certain devotions. Yeah, yeah, masses. Mm. Now. Let me ask you a quick question. Um, Ottavio grew up, by the way, in Rome, in Italy, as a devout Catholic, and was going to be a priest, and is now Reformed. Great story. Good guy. Come say hey. Let me ask a question, though. Um, <clears throat> the Mass, when, you, when Masses are said for people, um, that is different than an indulgence, though. Correct? Okay. All right, so, so your question, was your question about buying indulgences? Okay, but yeah. So what Otavio said is, when when, when uh, you can have another way to do it, which I did not ad- uh, address, is exactly what Atavio said. I'm going to say it for the mic: is that you can have a mat, you can have masses said for the deceased. Okay, and there is offering there, and and uh, that can end up taking time off people's uh, uh, stint in purgatory. We'll call it as well. Okay. And, and that a, a local priest can do that, but but a, a local priest cannot issue a uh, an indulgence. Okay. Any questions about what I said? Not about whether you agree. You understand? Yes, sir. Okay. The system that, that you're uh, explaining about puts man in the position of only in the, you know, from, from the very first reaction to God. In other words, God reacts to man. Yes. In the beginning. And then as... Well, they would tell you that God takes the first step through baptism. I mean, God, God, God calls everyone. So they would have like a Wesleyan understanding of prevenient grace where God graciously, no one is totally depraved. So everyone is being called more or less generally. So they would say God is the one who has to move first. And then they would say God moves first in justification initiated at baptism. Now you might be saying, well, hold on, wait a second. That's okay, what, what baptism is initiated by the That's true. Yeah. After the Yeah, that's Man true. Man is in position first cause call, call, God reacts to that measure of life. And then Man is still in first cause because you know he's got his first initial thing of, you know, seeking baptism. Yeah. So right. and uh, then he has to do something else. He moves forward a little more yeah. and then God grants him grace which is unmerited favor. He gets unmerited favor by marriage. So unmerited <laughs> Yeah, so um <laughs> Yeah, so that's really more of a cloaked objection than a, a question, I think, about what this is. I mean, because they would say, no, grace isn't unmerited favor. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. They, they would say that's the Protestant understanding of grace. We we have the nature-grace interdependence. Grace is something that completes or perfects nature. It was, it was operative in the garden. It's still operative now. It's a very different understanding of what grace is. And, and they would say... Yeah, on using the terms the way you use them, it doesn't make sense to merit grace. Using the the terms the way we use them, you know, it makes a lot more sense. Now that doesn't mean... Yeah, yeah. So, good good, uh, clarif- good opportunity to clarify, though. Yes, sir, real quick. <laughs> yes, well. So, purgatory, pri- primary justification for purgatory, first of all, you're asking you're you're playing on you're asking to play ball on the wrong field if you're asking the catholic doesn't have to play ball on the bible but if they do play ball on the bible then you got to say well is it going to be their bible which has the deuterocanonicals at the end of the old testament and you have like second maccabees where you have justification for purgatory Um, but in the new testament the one that people are going to go to the most often is first corinthians chapter three okay where everyone, that Paul is a master builder that lays his foundation and people are going to build on it and then the fire is going to burn it up and they're going to be saved, but only as those through the fire. Now, is that talking about something that happens right after death? No, it's not. It's talking about something at final judgment. That's why it can't be talking about purgatory. It's very clear. But remember, you can't understand the scripture by yourself. You would, you would be led to think that. You need, the, you need the Catholic Church to give an authoritative interpretation. And so, here we go. Okay? Does that make sense? Fair enough? Okay. Let's move into the sacramental system, the sacramental economy. There are three uh, kinds of uh, sacraments. So we're going to probably just get through the first. Uh, well, no, we're not going to maybe get through the first three today. The first is baptism, which we've already talked about a little bit. It cleanses of all sin, original and personally committed. It regenerates the heart, justifies and sanctifies. So quoting from 1213 of the Catholic Catechism, holy baptism is the basis of the whole Christian life. The gateway to life in the Spirit and the door which gives access to the other sacraments. Through baptism, we are freed from sin, reborn as sons of God. We become members of Christ, are incorporated into the church, and made sharers in her mission. Baptism is the sacrament of regeneration through the water and the word. Okay? The baptized have put on Christ through the Holy Spirit. Baptism is a bath that purifies. And then from 1228, hence, baptism is a bath of water in which the imperishable seed of the Word of God produces its life giving effect. So then they, they, it quotes Augustine that the Word is brought to the material element and it becomes a sacrament. So I feel like we've talked about this one enough. You have water, it's going to be blessed by a priest. You're going to receive baptism, it achieves effectively these things, and everyone. To whatever extent they were, well, everyone before baptism is kind of way, way down here in the sin category. You get back up to righteous, and then you're trying to hold the line the rest of your life. You know, you're trying to pass the finish line right here instead of right here. You're right here. Got to go to purgatory to get to right here. Okay. Yes, real quick. Um, well, it's been different, time, different times in uh, church history. Uh, and they'll do it different ways depending on where they are in in the world, but you know. <laughs> um, but generally it is uh, 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 I believe it is the uh, what's the little thing that they shake what's the shaker called the shaker he know, that's the technical term but anyways it's the sprinkle it <laughs> it's a shaker and it's in the thing and it's holy water is applied to you yeah yeah do what. Baby, Yeah, yeah, exactly. Correct. Yes. Okay, so let's go to the next step, which is confirmation. Now, some of you are more familiar with confirmation because there are Protestant denominations who do confirmation, but when Protestant denominations do confirmation, it's very different. So what is this business of confirmation? Confirmation, which is usually on the heels of some kind of catechesis, The confirmation is the point at which believers are, and I'm quoting here, more perfectly bound to the church and are enriched with the special strength of the Holy Spirit as they receive the seal of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so quoting from 1285, it must be explained to the faithful that the reception of the sacrament of confirmation is necessary for the completion of baptismal grace okay? It is necessary for the completion of baptismal grace. For by the sacrament of confirmation, the baptized are more perfectly bound to the church and are enriched with a special strength of the Holy Spirit. Hence, they are, as true witnesses of Christ, more strictly obliged to spread and defend the word, but defend the faith by word and deed. And so, in the, the Roman rite, at least, you have the priest, the bishop who extends his hand over the uh, uh, confirmants or whoever's getting confirmed there. And then, um, and then the, the Holy Spirit, and he invokes the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and then they receive a— it's not though they never had the Holy Spirit, but it's like you get the full measure of it, you get the seal of it, you get the, like the whole kit and caboodle. I mean, it's, it's like you get the upped version, and that comes with upped responsibilities. So 1302. It is evident from its celebration that the effect of the sacrament of confirmation is the special outpouring of the Holy Spirit as once granted to the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Okay? That awaits confirmation. That awaits uh, confirmation. From this fact, confirmation, 1303, brings an increase and deepening of baptismal grace. Okay? Um... The booster shot. That's a good way to think. (laughs) That's a good way to think about it. Yeah, the booster shot. And and it's kind of like, um, yeah, in one sense, it's like a dry baptism. (laughs) A dry believer's baptism. I mean, it is. uh, In fact, my friend who's an Anglican, they do confirmation, and that's exactly what he calls it. He's like, yeah, we do a dry believer's baptism. Confirmation. And they do infant baptism. Uh, But yeah, that's right. It is very much like a booster shot, you might say. Um, when Confirmation 1298 is cele- celebrated separately from baptism, like in the Roman Rite, the liturgy of Confirmation begins with the renewal of baptismal promises and the profession of faith by the confirmants. This clearly shows that Confirmation follows baptism. When adults are baptized, however, they immediately receive Confirmation and participate in the Eucharist. All right, the Eucharist. That leads us to our final Sacrament of Initiation. The central sacrament, by far, of the Catholic Church. By far, there is no closed second. The baptism is the entryway, kind of procedurally the foundational one, but in terms of the one that has, has, is by far the most important, the high, most highly regarded, it is the Eucharist. The Eucharist, 1324, is the source and summit of the Christian life. The other sacraments, and indeed all ecclesiastical ministries, church ministries, are, are and, and works of the apostolate are bound up with the Eucharist and are oriented toward it. For in the blessed Eucharist is contained the whole spiritual good of the church, namely Christ himself, our Pascha, our Passover Lamb. Um, our own version of what will then be Easter? Um, Eucharist. Who knows what the Eucharist is? When I say Eucharist, what do you think of? Yes. But what is that? What is, what is it, though? No. What would we call the Eucharist? We would call it the Communion or the Lord's Supper. Yeah, we the Protestants would call it communion or the Lord's Supper. Um, that's exactly right. I just wanted to define the term here. But it, for the Catholic understanding is very extraordinarily different. Okay? The first part of the understanding that is very different is transubstantiation. Okay? Transubstantiation. What is that? Reading from 1376, the Council of Trent summarizes the Catholic faith by declaring, because Christ our Redeemer said that it was truly His body that He was offering under the species of bread, this is from the Last Supper of the Gospels, it has always been the conviction of the church of God and His holy Council now declares again that by the consecration of bread and wine there takes place a change in the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of His blood. Okay? This change is called transubstantiation. And so the, the uh, epiclesis is pronounced, the priest literally performs a miracle, invokes the Holy Spirit, and the, the, the bread and the wine literally turn into the body and blood of Jesus. They're not symbols, they're not mere symbols. They are also symbols, but they're not mere symbols at all. There's not a spiritual presence. Christ is with us in the ceremony. That's not it. That he is contained, the physical body and blood, under the guise of these things, the accidents of the bread and wine, is the substance of Jesus' body and blood. Okay? The Eucharistic presence of Christ begins at the moment of the consecration and endures as long as the Eucharistic species subsists. Christ is present whole and entire in each of the species and whole and entire in each of their parts such that breaking the bread doesn't divide up Christ. Okay, so like if you get your piece of bread from the priest, your wafer, you didn't get like, oh, I only got part of Christ. You know, my buddy got the other part and I wanted that one. You no, know, the whole of Christ is offered, and that, because of what has happened, um, the body and blood of Christ stay the body and blood of Christ until they're gone. So if there's leftovers, they go back in the tabernacle, which is where this stuff is kept, okay? And, and it can be used to take to shut-ins. People will actually come up and adore the body and blood of Christ, In the tabernacle, it's usually uh, in a a prominent place uh, in the church. Uh, And so that's transubstantiation. In the conjunction with that is a real sacrifice. The real sacrifice. The holy sacrifice, because it makes present the one sacrifice of Christ the Savior and includes the church's offering. The term holy sacrifice of the mass, sacrifice of praise, spiritual sacrifice, Pure and holy sacrifice are also used, since it completes and surpasses all the sacrifices of the Old Covenant. Okay? So, just to be very clear, and a lot of Protestants get this wrong. Oh, it's going to say it in the next one, so I'm not going to say it yet. Real sacrifice. So, there is a real sacrifice that happens. All right? A bloodless sacrifice. in the sense, but a sacrifice, and what the idea here is that God's, uh, and I'll just go ahead and get into the next one. Um, let me read it and then I'll explain and we'll close. It's atoning. The Eucharist is atoning. It's propitiatory. It can only, it cannot atone for any mortal sins. Okay, if you've committed a mortal, a grave sin, you have to deal with that with penance before you can go take the Eucharist. But it can. Um, Uh, wipe out your venial sins and make you less likely to prevent mortal sin so atoning the sacrifice of christ and the sacrifice of the eucharist from 1367 here are one single sacrifice the victim is one and the same the same now offers to the ministry of priests who then offered himself on the cross only the manner of offering is different And since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is now contained and is offered in an unbloody manner. This sacrifice is truly propitiatory. So the thing that Protestants get wrong, and and it's just not their view, uh, and I'm not saying the, the, the right view in my judgment is any more plausible in this case, But it's not—Catholics don't believe that Jesus is sacrificed over and over and over and over and over. As you just heard me read, they believe there is one sacrifice and that the cross of Christ, the sacrifice on the cross, takes part in divine atemporality. So while it happened down here on the timeline, okay, it's timeless. If here's like the the space-time block, let's just be real like comic book about it. Here's the space, here's let there be light, here's when we've been there 10,000 years, we'll just cut the slice off right here. All right, Christ's sacrifice happens here in history, but actually it's a timeless sacrifice. So think of it happening up here with God's timelessness. And so what's happening it isn't Christ is getting re-sacrificed, it's one and the same sacrifice. It's just getting pulled down, you might say, onto different altars. It's getting tapped into. It is getting, the, the language used, it's getting represented, not represented, it is getting represented. In an unbloody way. They are to reach back, they are able to grasp something that happened back in history because it shares in divine atemporality. They are able to grasp it and represent it such that the same sacrifice that was made on the cross is just made available uh, right in front of the folks. That's the idea. Okay? Um, The Eucharist, then, because it is participation in the atoning sacrifice of Christ, like I mentioned, does have the ability to forgive venial sins Uh, the faithful are required by authoritative canon law to receive the Eucharist at least once a year my understanding it's supposed to be during Easter uh, I don't know how many Catholics go on Easter versus just once a year some other time I really don't know Um, okay we are right at time we are right at time I got through all my material all right we got through this the sacraments of initiation Uh, We went through a lot, but I'm hoping you're, again, with the Eucharist, you're able to see, again, the grace, nature, interdependence. Very obviously, right? The grace transforms the lower objects, the bread and wine. And then you see the Christ Church interconnection. The priest is the one who's able to do that and then mediate that to everyone else. Okay? Two fundamental tenets we're going to see in almost every single aspect of Roman Catholic thought. So let's go ahead and close in prayer if you have questions. Uh, please come ask me, and next time uh, I'll see if I can finish up the sacraments for us. With The, uh, the, the, the other one should go a little bit quicker, um, and, and then we'll turn towards uh, trying to give some critiques uh, to the whole system. Lord Jesus, we're thankful to be able to gather together and study these things. Again, we pray that we would consider them with humility, even when we disagree, and even when we disagree very, very strongly, um, that we wouldn't lose sight of at least commonalities that we have um, with regards to The existence of God, the divinity of Christ, monotheism, the atonement. uh, Lord, uh, we want to hold to what is true and good wherever we find it. And so as we even turn these things over in our heads and turn to critique the Catholic system in the next week or two, uh, we pray that you would give us, again, wisdom and grace as well as humility. Pray for your special presence among us in the following worship hour. And We ask these things in the name of Christ. Amen.